It is good to be back here. There we go. Hey, it's good to be back here with y'all this morning. This morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. So before we, before we get into this, I, I wanted to offer a word that I think is, is helpful Kind of in light of some of the things that we have experienced as a country this last week, words written to us by Dr. King, and you can find them in his book, Strength to Love, and King is, is wrestling with the idea of whether or not, at the point of his writing, we should be able to give ourselves to optimism or if we should succumb to pessimism. He was asking the question and, and leaning into this and wondering, have we come so far that we're headed in a good direction, or have we gone so far as to make us unrecoverable? So he offers these words. He says, we must be careful at this point not to engage in superficial optimism, or to conclude that the death of a particular evil means that all evil lies dead upon the seashore. All progress is precarious, and the solutions of one problem bring us face to face with another problem. The kingdom of God as a universal reality is not yet, because sin exists on every level of man's existence. The death of one tyranny is followed by the emergence of another tyranny. But just as we must avoid a superficial optimism, we must also avoid a crippling pessimism. Even though all progress is precarious, within the limits, real social progress may be made. Although man's moral pilgrimage may never reach a destination point on earth, his never-ceasing strivings may bring him ever closer to the city of righteousness. And though the kingdom of God may remain not yet as a universal reality in history, in the present it may exist in such isolated forms as in judgment, in personal devotion, and in some group life. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now as Christians, we have opportunity to testify to the goodness of God's kingdom. And when given opportunity to testify against injustice, we must raise our voices in concert. Christians cannot afford to be advocates for justice for some when injustice for any remains. We must be those who are staunch advocates willing sufferers to be advocates and proponents of moving forth God's kingdom here on earth. Amen? And so we mourn with those who mourn. And we cry out against injustice. And we pray for those who stand for the defense of the defenseless. And we recognize that any situation is infinitely more complex than it could ever be conveyed in, in social media, that it can ever be conveyed in mainstream media. But even in the midst of this difficulty, we advance in compassion. 
We stand for his kingdom. We advance the cause of Christ. Now, Paul gives us an opportunity in this passage to point to the difficulties of seeing that reality come to be, not just in our community, not just in our world, but within our own hearts. Because we recognize that we don't just war against flesh and blood. But there exists in this reality, in Paul's day, and until Christ comes again, an ever-present foe which seeks to divide, which seeks to destroy, which lives only to bring about death and destruction and seeks to stand against God's kingdom in its advance, seeks to see God's people dismayed, seeks to see God's people distracted, seeks to see God's people disjointed, seeks to see God's people live in only despair and not the reality of the victory won for us in the cross of Christ. But will we choose to live in this reality? Will we choose to embrace this reality or will we succumb to defeat? Paul has just told them in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10 that within them, in the midst of them, is the fullness of Christ living in them. He says, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In you, if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you have the power of the living God mightily at work within you. Will you submit to that? So Paul wants them to understand that the depths of the impact of Christ's sacrifice on their behalf and on the basis of having received his sacrifice, their lives might be lived impactfully. Their lives might be able to be transformative to their communities. Our lives might be able to be transformative to our community. Amen? Let's read 11 through 15, then we'll walk through. Paul writes and says, In him, in the Jesus who filled you, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We recognize that salvation is a work of God through Jesus overall. Salvation is a work of God through Jesus overall. Paul is seeking to encourage this group of Christians in in this church, in this particular church in Colossae, and he wants them to understand that the additional regulations that, that those of this heretical group seek to put upon them are not for their good, but are for their detriment. He wants them to understand that taking on any additional physical characteristic does not make them closer to God. It does not greater seal them to the goodness of Jesus. And so he begins with the idea of circumcision. 
Now, circumcision, you can find, is an instituted mark of the covenant in Genesis 17. And God institutes it to be a physical characteristic, a physical indicator that they are among, that they are aligned with God's people. But we recognize that even in the Old Testament, over the course of it, that the nature of what God is leaning towards isn't the marker of a physical characteristic, but an inward union with Christ. This is why God instructs Moses to write in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. It says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So Paul writes to them and he wants them to understand that they have been given this circumcision not made with hands. Giving them this sense that God has, has radically changed their hearts. He's taken away from them a dead heart, a heart of stone, and given them a heart of flesh. He's taken away from them a heart that doesn't beat for the things of God and has infused with them life flowing from the Holy Spirit in their lives. They have within them, you have within you, a heart made without hand. God has radically transformed and changed the Christian. And he's done this, according to this passage, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ has surrendered his life. And in coming in the likeness of human form, in taking on our sin, in taking on the wrath of God, do you, do me, on the basis of our failings, on the basis of our willingness to engage in sin, on the basis of our willingness to abstain from pursuing justice. Christ willingly took on death. He willingly surrendered himself up to experience the wrath of God for you and for me. So Paul paints us there in the midst of these things. He says, he has put off your body of flesh and these things have been accomplished by God through Jesus. Now, the really cool thing is that Paul gets into verse 12 and he begins to paint it in terms of the Christian church. He begins to paint it in terms of a right that many of us have experienced. He begins to paint it in terms of baptism. Maybe you're more familiar with the Romans 6 formula of baptism, but look at what Paul writes here. He says, you've experienced the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, there are a number of things we need to observe and notice in this. One is that baptism is not the thing, is not the sign, is not the act, whether any mode perceived, it is not the act which has saved them. Look at what he says here. We find ourselves in the midst of communion with Christ in baptism. But he's talking about Christ's death. He says, you've been buried with him in baptism. We have the sense that baptism by immersion best figures, best displays Christ's death and burial. And why? Because in baptism by immersion, you go down underneath the water and then we raise you back up, right? We we try and raise you back up. Some of you are still leaving in there. But in the midst of these things, we recognize that this best figures what it is to die and to be buried in the grave. And this is the cool thing. He says, when you come to Jesus, you have communion with Christ in his death. 
So in a very real sense, in this spiritual reality, when you came to know Jesus, at the moment you testified to him being Lord of your life, in this moment you were there with him in his death. And your baptism displays this. Your baptism depicts this. And he says that it's in the same way in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God. And this is why we know, and this is why we can point to and say, Baptism does not save us. Look at what he says there. You were raised through faith in the powerful working of God. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 that we have at work within us the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. And in baptism, you testify and you display to the goodness of God in allowing his son to be crucified and in the awesome power of God in raising him up from the dead and in faith in Jesus, you too are raised from the dead. You have died yourself. He has cast off the body of flesh. This thing which perpetually led you into sin. And he has given you new life in Jesus by raising you up with Christ. Now the terrific difficulty we get into is that any number of us have experienced physical baptism without sight of spiritual baptism. We've experienced physical baptism outside of God ever having done a work of regeneration in our hearts. We have gotten wet. We have been soaked, some of us, multiple times, always hoping that that water is somehow salvific, somehow magical, somehow more palatable, somehow more impactful, somehow powerful, somehow this time it will affect life change, but all we get is wet. We're wet dogs walking in the reality of our sin, staying existing in the body of our flesh. Baptism does not save you. can't tell you how many people I've spoken to in the last eight years pastoring at this church that repeatedly when you come in and you ask them, how then do you know Jesus? They say, well, I was baptized. The strength of their defense and the relationship with Jesus rests tenuously upon getting wet at some point in their past. It's ineffective. It only displays what has happened internally. Salvation is a work of God. It is not something we affect by joining in baptism. Now, some of us, many of us across this community need to be baptized once for the first time. But more than that, more than that, many of us need to quit trusting in our baptism for salvation and begin to walk in the reality of what a relationship with Jesus looks like. You, friend, need to die to self. You need to pray and ask that God would slay your flesh and would raise you with Jesus. And when the truth of that reality reigns in your heart, when you truly come to know and follow Jesus, then, and then alone, are you ever ready to enter into the waters to declare the goodness of Jesus. Now listen, we're a Baptist church, and so we think baptism is pretty important. Not super important, but we're going to go with pretty important. Super is an overused word. But your salvation is the most important decision you can make. And your baptism testifies to God's goodness and to your union with Jesus buried with him in baptism, raised by the powerful working of God, who raised Christ from the dead. Paul sees this communion with God, and he wants us to recognize how, how close it is to the believer. 
how close our communion would be with him. And this is why he writes in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul calls us, Jesus by the Spirit directs Paul to instruct us to submit ourselves to Jesus, to see ourselves living a cruciform existence, a life having been crucified with Christ. And a life now lived in the flesh, submitting ourselves, living each day under the direction of Jesus by faith in him. Amen? Now look at the good news for the lost. Look at the good news for our former existence in verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So you get into the midst of this, and, and still there is existing within our day, still there's existing within some of our hearts, still there's existing within some of our homes and our extended families, this idea that somehow we have done God a solid favor in preparing our hearts to receive him on the virtue of having done good things. On the basis that, that, that we were ready for salvation, on the basis that we were moving in a direction towards him, on the basis that in the midst of these things that God was centering our hearts on him. When all the while we were a screaming child. Look at what he says. He says, we were dead in our trespasses. Now, a more wooden translation of this says, being dead in your trespasses. See, we didn't exist in a singular state. This is formerly we were dead and then sporadically we were alive in the midst of these things. But we were perpetually, continually, consistently persisting in deadness. We were racist and we were fine with it. We were sexist, and we were fine with it. We were adulterers in heart and in actuality, and we were fine with it. We were addicted to drugs and alcohol, and we were okay with it. We had lies born in our hearts. We hated the people around us, and we were okay with it. We were idolaters. And we suppose that our idols were sanctified. The Bible tells us that in every form of existence, in our former manner of life, that all those things, even the goodness that some of us pursued, all of these things were various articulations of our deadness. Some of our deadness is more culturally appropriate than others. It doesn't make it any more alive outside of Jesus and outside of the work that God brings about through him to affect in your heart you remain dead some of us are dead although slightly more wet having been baptized it takes a work of God through the effectiveness of Jesus to make us alive and in the midst of these things God finds us in the midst of our deadness, 
in the midst of our wretchedness, in the midst of our hatred towards our fellow man or our fellow woman, in the midst of these things, our God finds us and he pulls us from the midst of our sin and he makes us alive together with Jesus. We've been made alive with Jesus. You've been given a new heart in the midst of these things. God took your old heart, your heart of stone, your dead heart, and he cast it off, and he cast it far from you, and you gave you a new heart, and he put it inside you. The fullness, fullness of him who fills all in all resides in you. The power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and by this power he has made you alive just as he's made his son alive. He's forgiven you all your trespasses. He's dismissed all of them. And he gives us this beautiful picture of what that looks like in verses 14 and 15. He says he's forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Essentially in verse 14, the picture we see is that you and I over the course of our lives, we are keeping a list and a record of all the inadequacies. We're keeping a record and writing a list and engaging in the midst of these things. And so when we engage our fellow man, we write, liar. 529, adulterer. 530, supporter of injustice. 531, racist. And over the course of our life, we write all these things. Pursuer of good. Abandoner of hope. rebel against God. And we take all of these things on this list and at the bottom of it we sign our names and we say this is a true statement of the reality of my life and we submit it to God and this is what he does. He cancels it. This gives us the picture of someone taking a piece of papyrus that has had all these sins and all of these misdeeds and all of the waywardness of our heart scrawled on there and God eradicates them all. But how does he eradicate them? Does he merely blot them out? Does he merely set them to the side and say, no, these things aren't important? No, what he tells us is he takes all of these things and he nails them to the cross. He takes all these things and their legal demand. He takes all the injustice of my heart. He takes all the waywardness of my heart. He takes all the disbelief of my heart. He takes all the evil in our society. And all the wrath of God that it deserves. And over the cross that, that read, here is Jesus, King of the Jews. What Paul would see as figure. Above the head of Christ. It's the running list of our sins. This IOU we have submitted to God and all the consequence of our behaviors, this list of all of our weaknesses, this list of all of our failures, this hangs above the head of Jesus. And so we see there our names. We see there our failures. We see there the power of God at work. The God who made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might live to be the righteousness of God. Our sin. As the hymnist writes, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. 
God has wonderfully affected your salvation. God has devastated the record of wrong that you've perpetrated. It holds no sway over who you are in Jesus. Don't let it live directing your heart. Don't let it live reminding you of your failures. Remember that as it hung there above our Savior's head, our God was devastating it. You see, in this moment when our IOU and our failures hangs above the head of Jesus, all of the horde of hell rejoice. Assuming his defeat, recognizing his failure and his soon coming death. Because he lay there humiliated. He hung there devastated. He was suspended there stripped. But Paul tells us what he was actually accomplishing. Was this mass disarmament of the horde of hell. He says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In the cross of Christ and in his resurrection, Jesus was defeating every foe that we would ever face. He was bringing an end to the eternal consequence of sin and death by taking on our consequence for sin above his cross. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Jesus is this triumphant general marching his defeated foe through the city, and this day will come. But while we wait, while we wait for Christ's return, while we wait for all injustice be, to be answered, while we wait for an end to tears, while we wait for an end to sickness, while we wait for an end of wars, and while we wait for an end of hate, we live in the reality of the already and the not yet. And we shine as light. Christian, when you fall and fail and give yourself over to sin, you're handing victory to an already defeated foe. Jesus has already brought an end to all these things inside of us because he and he alone reigns and rules in our hearts. Amen? So we recognize that for the Christian. The place of sin, its endorsement, or our quietness when we see it, it has no place. We might find ourselves in those times working in concert with those who stand against the cause of Christ, in whose death all of those foes were disarmed. As a church, as a people of God, we call evil, evil. We call hate, hate. And we apply the gospel to all of it. 
recognizing that we were dead. None of us in this room, none of us in this hearing were able to atone for our own sins. All of us, every one of us, was spiritually dead and in need of a Savior, which causes us to have terrific optimism and hope for the regeneration, for the hope and the healing of the hearts of the wayward in every walk of life. And it's necessary for the Christian, it's necessary for the church to constantly testify to this gospel and to call people to receive it and to live a life in obedience to it. Amen? Salvation is that thing which our God has accomplished through the power of Jesus overall. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would stir us up to love and good deeds. Father, I pray for any who have been baptized any number of times but have not yet submitted themselves to Jesus. God, that if they're on the live stream, that they would submit a comment or send a message, that if they're here in this place, that they would walk out in a moment to meet with one of our elders to pray with them. God, would you do a work in our hearts? Would you continue to remind us of whose we are and how you have made us? Would you cause us to stand for righteousness? Father, I'm in awe of the amazing thing that you've accomplished by nailing our sins to your cross and canceling our record of debt. God, cause us to be in continual awe and rejoicing of your goodness to us. And we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.